Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter. For this week's episode, we have an experiment in interviewing and music, thanks to Spectrum's interviews editor, Alita Bird, who took a chance to move beyond typing interviews to recording one. And so we're going to do several new things here this week. The first is I'm going to play some music first. It's a composition called Stones and Bread from a larger work called The Appointed Time by our interview subject today, composer Dr. James Lee III. This will last about four minutes, and it's performed by the Afro-American Chamber Music Society Orchestra at the Glendale City Seventh-day Adventist Church in 2013. After that, I'll have a brief conversation with Alita about this interview, and then you'll get a chance to listen to her conversation with James Lee III. Thanks so much for listening.
I'm honored to be joined in an experimental episode with someone many of you have read on our website, Alita Bird, our interviews editor. Welcome, Alita. Thank you so much, Alex. So you just had a really interesting interview with someone that you discovered. Uh, tell us a little bit about what folks are about to hear. I had a very interesting and wide-ranging discussion with a composer, James Lee III, an Adventist composer living in Maryland. Um, and it was really interesting to hear about all of his different projects that he's working on and a little bit about his background. And I'm really excited to get to share some of that. Well, I got a chance to listen to it already. And I think folks are in for um, a very um, thoughtful exploration of music and Adventist theology. So thanks so much for um, sharing this audio interview with us. And normally your work is published in written form on the website. Will you be sharing a written form of this interview as well? Uh, yes, I hope to put it down. A lot of times podcasts talk about the transcript is available, and um, this will be a, a very lightly edited transcript of the interview that you'll hear today. Great. Um, how did you find out about uh, James Lee III? Well, um, I first heard about him through Spectrum. Um, we publish on the website a news roundup put together by Pam Dietrich um, in which she sources stories about Adventists that are written about in the secular press around the United States and around the world. Um, and sometimes we hear of stories that we feel we should have known about already. Um, and this story came to us from the Post and Courier Free Times in Columbia, South Carolina. And we found it because it was a story about some upcoming music of James Lee III's. And in the interview with this um, newspaper, he talked about his Adventist faith. And um, that's how it came to our attention. And when I read this little blurb in our news roundup, I thought, who is James Lee III? I have to talk to him. Um, I'm so interested in Adventist connections with music and Adventist musicians. And um, so I got in touch with him and, and asked if he would share more about his work with the Spectrum audience. And he was happy to do that. So tell us a little bit more about James Lee III. Well, it's difficult to summarize the many professional accomplishments of this composer. He His works for orchestra, string quartet, chorus, and other varied musical ensembles have been commissioned and premiered by the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Chorus, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, and many other orchestras across the United States. His music has been played at Tanglewood and championed by famed conductor Leonard Slatkin. Next month, in honor of Juneteenth, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra will be opening a gala concert with a piece they commissioned by James Lee called Destined Words, 
a piece written for narration and orchestra that will be performed together with the rapper Wordsmith. Lee has 14 different new works scheduled to be premiered in the coming months, he told me. But his music has something more than the music of most contemporary composers. Some of Lee's biggest sources of inspiration are the books of Daniel and Revelation, the story of the great controversy and the second coming of Jesus. Lee is a lifelong Adventist. He attended Andrews Academy and Andrews University before he went to the University of Michigan, where he earned his first degree in piano performance and then his master's and doctorate in composition. He started out singing in the children's choir at church and only began piano lessons at the age of 12. The piece Lee wrote for his dissertation for the University of Michigan was based on the river of life in Revelation. He called it Beyond Rivers of Vision, and it was premiered at the Kennedy Center in 2006, played by the National Symphony Orchestra. Now, while most of Lee's work is played by professional orchestras, he still writes for musicians at Andrews University, has written a piano concerto for a pianist at Washington Adventist University, and has taught and conducted at the Adventist University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. In this wide-ranging discussion, James Lee talks about which composers inspire him, the difference between music that is sacred and that which is profane, how he keeps the Sabbath hours holy, how he incorporates elements of African-American music into his work, and the concertos and oratorios in his head that are yet unwritten. You are a prolific composer, um, and you've written a lot of different things, a, a wide variety of music for a wide variety of instrumentations. And I believe the Detroit Symphony Orchestra will soon be playing a piece of yours called American. Can you describe that music for us? Well, American is actually a work that was influenced by some paintings that I saw of Emblems of America. And the composer Dvorak, Antonin Dvorak composed a work called the New, work, the New World Symphony. Yes. And he, he always um, advocated for American concert music to incorporate music of Negro Americans and Native Americans. So this particular work is inspired by actually some emblems from 1798 of Negro indigenous Indians here in America. And, and in those paintings, I uh, was inspired by various aspects of that history. And also I quoted a little of the New World Symphony in my particular work. So you have some of it that's a, that's a nod to the music of Dvorak. Sure, because when I spoke with the Detroit Symphony, I actually encouraged them to program the New World Symphony along with my piece because I thought that that would be a good pairing in terms of the, the programmatic aspects of the con concert. And then it would also encourage other orchestras in the future when they are performing the Dvorak Symphony to consider programming my New World American also with that. Oh, yeah, that's that's very interesting. So this... Um Oh, I see, because I'm not used to uh, Adventists taking interest in what I'm doing. <laughs> well, so, and, and yes, I did. I was trying to do some research to find out had had you been profiled by Adventist publications or talked about, and I found a, maybe a few little mentions, but nothing very much. And I was kind of surprised to hear that because um, 
you are an active Adventist as far as I know. And, um, you know, this is, it, it's amazing the work that you're doing. And I think Adventists should be proud of that and, and be talking about it in, in my view. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, that's nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was really surprised. I mean, I was the, I don't know if you know about GYC. US? It was called General Youth Conference. Now I think it's called Generations of Youth for Christ. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I was the music director of that for like four years. And I've always been in the church and having this church. I'm an elder in my church now, but, um, but uh, it's just funny, that side of music, it didn't seem like that interest. Like, I, I even talked to the uh, Adventist Review about what I was doing one time at the Kennedy Center. They weren't really interested. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll keep doing my work. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised and kind of appalled that, um, that, yeah, you haven't, your name hasn't been more out there. But I suppose that would explain why I hadn't heard of you before now even though it seems that a lot of your work has been inspired by your faith at least according to some of the um secular press that has talked to you so sure. maybe we can talk about that a little bit how how would you describe your faith as influencing your work well when i was a student at the university of michigan i I uh, listened to a piece by a French Catholic composer whose name is Olivier Messiaen. And he composed this work called Quartet for the End of Time. And I remember being so taken by that work and how he was such a towering figure in 20th century classical art music that I was thinking in my doctoral programs, why can't I as a Seventh-day Adventist also incorporate um, like various uh, doctrines that we have, or even some of the Bible studies that I've been doing on Daniel and Revelation and th that wonderful imagery and incorporate that into music. So I decided that I would be part of my compositional output from my student days. And my dissertation, um, Beyond Rivers of Vision, was actually premiered by the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center in 2006. So one year after I graduated, that work was performed. And that actually is based off the river of life and revelation. And of course, one of the divisions of the river from Genesis, from the Garden of Eden, and then the same river, the Tigris, or in Hebrew, Chidikel, mm -hmm. from Daniel chapter 10. So that, that work actually started my career. That's amazing. So yes, you've been thinking along these lines ever since your doctoral work. And what was the reaction to that um, piece being performed at the Kennedy Center? Oh, the press, the Baltimore Sun and the Washington Post were very favorable in their reviews. And the orchestra, uh, they were also quite enthusiastic in their uh, performance. And the conductor at the time, Leonard Slacken, he had been a, he still is a proponent of young American composers. And he actually told me after the Saturday night performance, he wanted to keep tabs on me so he could keep up what I'm doing and then consider programming some more works of mine. So that's what he did. He pre-programmed a new piece about my grandfather in World War II with the Detroit Symphony as his first concerts with the Detroit Symphony in the fall, in December of 2008. 
And it was such great exposure because all the concerts were sold out. They were programmed, programming also this large work called Carmina's Bar- Carmina Barana mm-hmm. for soloist, chorus, and orchestra. So that sold out every night. So I had a tremendous amount of exposure from that concert. So, so it was actually Leonard Slacken who really started. Uh, I know that the the books of Daniel and Revelation have inspired a lot of artists and and of course, uh, the Adventist musician, the late Virginia Jean Rittenhouse, wrote her vision of the apocalypse, her oratorio that was based on that book, which was performed in Carnegie Hall. Um, so I thought it was interesting that you also find these books to be maybe the one of the biggest biblical inspirations to, to your music. Are there other... Um, other biblical themes that you have explored or, or are interested in? That's been most of it, but I have a premiere next week in New York, a, a song cycle, the 92nd Street Y commissioned me to write a work for soprano, clarinet, and piano. And they wanted that particular instrumentation because there's also a work by Franz Schubert on the same concert with, that, uh, with those particular instruments. So I actually did some research and I found these poems about women in the Bible who did not have a voice. So like it, it, imagine responses of certain women in the Bible who were not, whose, whose uh, words were never recorded. For example, uh, there is Absalom's wife. That's one of the poems. Um, Abishag, who was taken to be near King David in his, in his late years, the late years of his life. The woman who has been over that Jesus healed, and also uh, Matthew, the tax collector's wife. So they all have their expressions about what life was like for them being near their husbands. And of course, Abishag, um, her and her uh, experience. And these are some wonderful poems that I found. And the woman, the poet, is actually quite delighted. Um, I found her poems. And they will be premiered uh, next week on May 11. That's fascinating. So the soprano in this instrumentation is singing the words of these women in the Bible who so up to now have not really had a voice. Correct. Yeah, it starts with the prologue. The, the first song is called After Eve, Then What? And then the next four songs explore these kind of these experiences of these women if they were if they would have expressed or if their stories would have been told wow that's wonderful well i hope you get a great reception to that work but i can imagine that audiences have been greatly affected and the premieres of your work and the concerts and so on have been really affected over the last year and a bit because of covid how has covid impacted your work? I've never stopped during the whole COVID time. I was working on pieces that were uh, scheduled to be premiered for this year and next year, but uh, I never stopped at all. I actually received more commissions than, than I've ever had in my life during COVID. And then there are also performances of my music uh, online. Even even this past Tuesday, I forgot about a concert, but it, a piano, I mean, a clarinet quintet of mine was played in Ohio. 
uh, with a live audience, but it was premiered in March uh, online. So I've had quite a bit performances online during the pandemic and a lot of um, music that I've been writing for future premieres. So I never really stopped at all. <laughs> oh, that's great. So maybe you've had a little bit more quiet time to compose since you haven't had to be running around as much as in your normal life. Sure, yeah, I haven't been on a plane as much. I, I just got back from Tulsa, Oklahoma on Sunday. So that was the first time I needed to travel in over a year for a premiere of a new piece. But yeah, I've been mostly on Zoom interviews um, and listening to online concerts. And do you generally travel to attend a premiere of your work? Yeah, all premieres, I usually travel. They usually uh, really desire my presence there as any composer. Usually a composer is at the world premiere. Maybe not the subsequent performances, but typically the world premiere composers are present. And going back to the instrumentation, you talked about the soprano and the I can't, the, the instruments that are in your 92nd Street Y um, concert coming up. What is your favorite type of ensemble or orchestra or, or choir to compose for? What, what instrumentation do you like the best? Oh, by far the orchestra. Yeah, the orchestra, that's been my favorite. And it seems for me, that's the one that I can, I have more opportunities. You might think that writing for choir would be something that might be easier. But for me, in my experience, having an orchestra play my music or commission a new work has always been easier than uh, writing for choir. It's a I mean, lot of not, voices. Not, not yeah, not writing for choir necessarily, but actually having a choral piece performed or commissioned. Orchestra seems like just so many voices to be thinking about. Yeah, but it's the, the colors you can achieve and the things you can do with an orchestra. I mean, that's what really attracts me to it. And Have, um, have you played yourself very many orchestra instruments? I believe you were a pianist first. Are there other instruments that you have some level of proficiency in? No, I've only played the piano. I've only studied the piano and I still play the piano. But um, in high school at, at Andrews Academy, I played the timpani one semester. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. <laughs> My mother was also a timpanist in, I think, high school. And, um, and yeah, I... I always think about how many measures rest you have to count and how, how I would never be able to do it. I would be too distracted and lose track. Um, so how many pieces have you composed? Have you lost track of that? Yeah, you know, I never know how many pieces I've composed. Um, I just write and send it to my publisher I know, I think the listing with my publisher may be over 80 works or something like that, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I know uh, once things start to, uh, concerts start to be rescheduled, I know I'm expecting around 14 world premieres pretty soon. So 14. I know I have, yeah. <laughs> so I know I have to um, plan my schedule accordingly for when I can travel and, and my teaching schedule. That's amazing. And do you, do you just have 
so much music in your head trying to come out. I mean, to me, the work of composing music is unfathomable. And um, is, is the music just there? Or do you sometimes get commissioned and sit down and have whatever the composer's version of writer's block is? Where, where does your inspiration come from? How do you keep having new ideas? Well, sure. You know, I, I usually pray before I compose anything. Like when I listen to my music, sometimes I think, wow, did I really write that? I don't even know how I did that. <laughs> but I know I pray and then I'm using the, the skills that I've learned from the University of Michigan when I studied there. And then I uh, work out some ideas, work out harmonic structures or what do I want to appear rhythmically in the music and melodically. But then sometimes I do receive... Uh, writer's block. For example, I had a new piece that was commissioned by the Baltimore Symphony for narration and orchestra that's being premiered next month. And it was a new piece that they just added. They just told me about it in like late February. And I had one day where I was working all day and I could not receive this breakthrough until almost midnight. So I was working in the morning and then taking breaks on and off. And then finally around midnight, I just changed the direction of what I, where I was going with one particular passage. And then it really just solved the problem. Wow. That's, I, I, I just so admire that ability to hear the music in your head and use notation. And then it comes out as music. I think that's amazing. Um, so just going back, you, did play the piano when you were younger and you said you thought you still do as well. Um, how old were you when you started playing the piano? Quite late, 12 years old. Yeah, that's late for music lessons. Yeah, it's very late. My father signed me up for lessons without my knowledge. <laughs> he just told me one day, oh, I signed you up for piano lessons. But years later, I thanked him for doing that because, uh, you know, I, like any other young boy, I was interested in sports. I still am interested in sports, but I don't play sports as much like I, I did when I was younger. But, um, yeah, I used to pass the method books for piano like one every week. I was so um, interested and in love with music at the time. And what experience did you have with music before you were 12? Only listening to music in church. Uh, and then uh, some popular music I would hear. I actually, I actually remember liking popular music until I started piano uh, lessons. And then after that, I don't really listen to it anymore. I haven't really listened to it anymore unless it's being played in my hearing somewhere. <laughs> mm. So you weren't in the church choir or anything like that? I was. I was in the youth choir. Yeah, the children's choir and the youth choir. And what do you remember? What do you remember about that? Was that a formative experience? Uh, I think I used to have fun with my friends until I started to really understand music more. And then the youth choir wasn't as interesting to me anymore <laughs> because I, I felt like what I was learning and what they were doing, it just didn't, wasn't as appealing to me as much anymore. Have you asked? Your... I, I wanted to be... Go ahead. I just wanted to, be, I wanted to be really serious with my music and, and those, the choir and the rehearsals seemed to me just to be a, a social gathering. Mm, interesting. Have you asked your father why, what inspired him to sign you up for piano lessons? 
I think probably because they bought a toy piano for me when I was a little boy and they saw my interest in playing around with that little piano. And then they tried to sign me up for guitar lessons later, but I didn't really want to learn the guitar. And I really thought piano was more for girls to play when I was a boy. But then when he actually finally just made the decision to register me for the lessons, then I just fell in love with it ever since. So you were um, quite, quite quickly, you took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. And do you remember when you first got interested in compositions? Uh, I was in elementary school and a teacher saw me writing notes and she um, told me, you know, there exists manuscript paper. And I didn't know that. And it wasn't until years later in, at Andrews Academy in high school that I uh, started to write a little bit more. And I wrote something for piano that I ended up winning a talent show and um, the People's Choice Awards for the program there at, in high school at the academy. And so that was at Andrews Academy. When, uh, what year were you in then? Do you remember? Oh, I was probably, I know I was probably a sophomore. I think sophomore or junior, maybe. So it had to have been like 1993, 1992 or 1993. And then just give us a little um, synopsis of your musical education after that. You went to Andrews Academy, you graduated there. And then what after that? So then I, I thought I would be this wonderful pianist. So I trans, I mean, I didn't transfer. I went to uh, Andrews University for two years. And then two of my friends were leaving. And, you know, I really wanted to wor work on my solo piano repertoire. And I ended up accompanying a lot, uh, accompanying singers and violinists. And I didn't even know how good of a, university or the school of music was at the university of michigan but i applied there and i was accepted so i finished my bachelor's degree in piano performance at the university of michigan and then i was going to go to the peabody conservatory here in the baltimore area or the university of maryland i was accepted for piano performance but then i changed my mind about piano performance altogether and i applied to the composition program at michigan which at that time was ranked like number one one in the country, well, in the top four or five. So then I ended up staying at Michigan for the master's and the doctorate for composition. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so you probably met a number of other musicians and composers then in your time there. And and mm -hmm. have you worked sure. with have you worked with some of them since? Oh yes, definitely. Um, there is this couple, they're, they're married, and at the time they were both students at the University of Michigan and they nominated me for a commission. They started this, this program called, this organization called the Sphinx Organization. And that organization is an organization that really helps uh, young black and Latino players, string players. And they have these, this competition where every year they have a youth division and a senior division and those students go on to have, you know, wonderful careers and play with orchestras. And they also had something called the composers, like this orchestral composition consortium commission. And they nominated me for this commission in 2010. And I actually won that nomination. And to this day, the piece that I wrote called Sukkot, the Orion's Nebula has been played 
more than 20 times or so. So that was uh, a huge blessing. So that's one example. Another example is um, a pianist who studied at Michigan. She actually recorded my piano music back in 2014 on the Albany label. So I've been collaborating on and off with, with colleagues of mine that studied at Michigan. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's nice to have that network of musicians. Um, and how about Adventist musicians? I know that you have, um, I know that your work has been played by the New England Youth Ensemble. Um, what, what other Adventist musicians have you collaborated with or um, Adventist groups might have played your work? What, what examples are there? Actually, I've been more successful in South America with uh, Adventist musicians. So I've had um, an oratorio performed at UNASPI, the Adventist University in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, and then I was the composer in residence for their festival that they have down there in Brazil at the same Adventist University in January of 2020. And I would have been there again this year, but uh, the pandemic changed everything. So then uh, besides that, I wrote a concerto for violin an orchestra that Carla Trinchuk at Andrews University would, would have premiered, um, I guess it would have been last year in March, but they rescheduled it to next spring, so 2022. And she was actually one of my theory teachers at Andrews University before I transferred. So I'm actually looking forward to going back to Andrews and hearing her premiere the violin concerto. That'll be great. I, I would imagine that maybe some of these Adventist groups and the, and the university orchestras and so on don't have a budget to commission works, whereas some bigger groups do. And maybe that has something to do with who plays them. Yeah, I can imagine that, certainly. I mean, Andrews did, but I, I gave them the uh, Adventist discount. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're the, the, the alumnus giving back to your institution. That's very nice. Um, and, and how about playing with the New England Youth Ensemble or, or the, them playing your work? Actually, they haven't played my work yet. They, they, the organization that, I mean, well, they'll play it at WAU, Washington Adventist University. I wrote a piano concerto for Daniel Lau, and that would have been premiered in August last year but I haven't heard exactly when they plan to reschedule that uh, concert. So that's one that I'm actually you know, also really enthusiastic about hearing, but I just don't know uh, what their plans are at this point. Sure. When, um, how would you describe the, the style of music that you compose for, for maybe someone listening who is, um, who is not a musician, but how, how would you describe the music? There are certain elements of contemporary classical music harmony that I incorporate, but I always try to provide elements of accessibility. So someone who doesn't listen to music, there's always a balance of what one can really grasp and understand as a lay listener and also appreciate some of the uh, more modern techniques of rhythm and meter and dissonance that eventually uh, is resolved. So I think I really try to work on that kind of balance. 
I remember one piano trio, some of the elderly that attend the concert told me that they, my music kept them on edge and they were so engaged in it, whereas they went to sleep on Brahms. <laughs> right, right. How would you describe the difference? Um, well, we historically have had this definition of sacred music um, versus, well, I suppose the original word would be profane, but um, you know, we, we've had this sacred music that we maybe play in church or during the Sabbath hours um, versus music that is classical music, but has no, no religious um, history or, or connotation. Would you, would you think of that um, definition of, of sacred music and, and do you think about that when you're composing your work and, and what, what would you describe as sacred music? Oh yeah, certainly I think about that, especially because of the Sabbath also. So a lot of my music also um, has these biblical uh, subject matter from the Bible or even prophecy in the Bible because of the fact that a lot of times my music is programmed first. So if it happens to be programmed on the Sabbath and I'm listening to it and I'm actually there at the concert, I'll usually be there and then I'll leave, especially if it's like a Friday evening is the first one so that I'm not drawing any undue attention to me during the Sabbath hours. And I don't want to have conversations that might be something I shouldn't be discussing on, on Sabbath. So when I'm thinking about sacred music, of course, I'm always thinking about what can bring glory and honor to God and his, uh, his handiwork and his blessings with me and my own music in a way that is tasteful in terms of um, really telling the story and being genuine to what the word of God says. And I know there are some who may think about syncopation and these various aspects of music to be negative connotations, but uh, it does not necessarily have to be negative just because it might have uh, some kind of stress on the offbeat. Because when I'm thinking about what's happening musically and kind of conveying the idea of what the text is saying, not everything will line up in a metric order that is always even. That's not the way the text was actually some of these biblical stories. Like you can't portray the beast from Daniel 7 in a way that is going to be so predictable. <laughs> you know, you just can't do it. We're going to talk about those four winds. I mean, I have a piece called Night Visions of Kippur, where I explore that, especially in the first movement and in the last movement. And you just really can't do that. So when you think about profane music, a lot of times my music, like I had a concert, a piece of mine that was on the radio with Chicago Symphony. And it's this work, Sukkot Theorized Nebula, which is a very, uh, also work which is really describing the Feast of Tabernacles and the second coming of Jesus from Revelation 14, uh, after the, the three angels' messages were mentioned. And on the same concert, it was programmed with um, Night on a Bare Mountain, which is about witches and darkness. So I have been programmed as a music of light compared with the darkness. So in the profane aspect, it's really something that's drawing one more to what is worldly and, and human in terms of humanity and worshiping humanity and the artist and not the creator. So that's how I kind of make that difference and think about the sacred, the profane. Who, who are you going to worship? Because we know at the end, the issue is about who are you going to worship? 
who will your allegiance be to? Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I, I, I did used to play with um, Dr. Rittenhouse and she always talked about how uh, Bach was so great because he believed that all music should be to the glory of God and the refreshment of the spirit. And that was the story she told in, in every concert. And, um, and that it didn't necessarily have to have um, words that were biblical texts, but, um, but if the music did that, uh, then it was sacred music. But I know different people might think of these this in yeah, different well, ways. Yeah, Bach, of course, Bach and Mendelssohn, they both really, you know, in their works, they really highlighted God in terms of the, being the creator and him being whose honor and glory we should ascribe to, to. But just because it's classical music, some people believe that, oh, it's sacred. I mean, it's classical music. There's nothing wrong. But, you know, you know, some of these works really don't have any business to be heard or played on the Sabbath. <laughs> like, I know the history of the composers and the work, just because it might seem neutral, it, I don't think all those works really are as neutral as one might think. I think you and Dr. Rittenhouse would be right on the same page there. <laughs> um, what, what contemporary composers and what historic composers inspire you? Um, well, I like some of my teachers, of course, um, all, all my teachers, but I'll name just a few. William Bolcom was one of my teachers and Bright Shane and Michael Doherty. Then there's John Adams, whose music I really appreciate and learn from. Um, there's this composer from Australia whose music I really become to know, I mean, I've come to know, his name is Nigel um, Westlake. And he has this wonderful work called Compassion which mixes Hebrew language and Arabic language. And it's just wonderful what he did in that work. Of course, some of the older composers I really like were uh, Takemitsu, who was a Japanese composer. And of course, uh, Shostakovich. I love his pacing and balance in his orchestral music, in the symphonies. And of course, Beethoven, Ravel, and Debussy with the colors. Oh, and a lot of Hinastera. Hinastera's driving rhythms are very fascinating. And would you say that um, you, when at the beginning of the conversation, you were um, mentioning elements of uh, Native Americans and maybe African American music, would you feel that there are elements of African American music that you generally try to use in your work? Yeah, I have. I've used some, uh, even this piece of Medikan, I used the, um, a, a Negro spiritual, just one, in, in a passage in that particular piece, in the flute. And what's interesting is that uh, Dvorak said that when he listened to music of Negro Americans and, and um, Native Americans, he couldn't really distinguish between the two. So when you actually hear spirituals, if you put it with the flute, you'll think it's uh indigenous american and native american that's so, very interesting i never would have thought of that link but so you're saying that when that melody is maybe played by a different instrument it's going to sound like native american music 
Yeah, when you listen to what, like, a lot of times African Americans are called African Americans, but historically most of us have been, have a lot of native or indigenous blood in us. And, but that's a whole other story. I'm not going to really necessarily get into it as much today. But when you hear the music and the spirituals, it has the same kind of scalar construction of minor modes and minor pentatonic scales that you'll find in those spirituals that you can hear in uh, Native American music as well. So that is something I've really been interested in because uh, historically many African-Americans have been reclassified from being Indians to being so-called Africans. Hmm, that's very interesting. Um, do you know any other Adventist composers? I do. There's one, I think he's Adventist. His name is Joel Thompson and he's, he gets a lot of different uh, performances of his work. Like I know he has music being uh, premiered by the since the uh, Seattle Symphony this season. He's been played by the uh, Atlanta Symphony. I think he's based in Atlanta, but I think he's now at Yale. So I know him. If you're talking about ones who are writing on like orchestral music, I think he's probably the only one I can think of off the top of my head. I know we have other Adventist composers at our institutions, but I don't know of anyone who is doing similar to what I'm doing. Yeah, it, it does seem kind of unique. <laughs> um, so what, uh, what, what would you say, because we would love for people to hear some of your works, if there were specific ones that you were suggesting that we, um, let people hear what what would you suggest what are the what are the works you're the most proud of or or maybe um show the range of what you've done it's hard to say because the temptation is to say sukkot the orange nebula because that's been played so much uh, and i'm almost embarrassed not embarrassed by the piece but sometimes i think people might think oh that's the only thing he can write that was good <laughs> but um but that's one for sure, because that one, it has been a blessing to me uh, ever since I uh, wrote it. So that's definitely one to listen to. That's for orchestra. Uh, probably, uh, maybe my violin sonata. That, I think that worked out very well. It's a, my second violin sonata. It's on my webpage also. Um, there is a piano trio called Temple Visions. I think that might be something that one might be interested in. It just depends on if someone wants to hear instrumental music or have a work called Hallelujah uh, for chorus. That's mm -hmm. also on my website. So that might be something that's for choir a cappella. And I use the name of God in Hebrew, uh, like various names of God, like El Yeshua Tenu, like God, our salvation, or the one God, El Echad, that kind of thing. So the names of God are intertwined with the text, hallelujah, throughout that particular choral piece. Those are great suggestions. Thank you. You currently live in Baltimore. I, I live a little north of Baltimore in a little town called Edgewood, Maryland. Okay. I'm from Maryland originally. Okay. Um, so would you say Baltimore Symphony Orchestra is your, is your local orchestra? Definitely, they are. And I'm actually, I've been blessed to be commissioned by them in this particular year twice. <laughs> That's so, wonderful. And are you able to go to concerts again now? 
Are they playing um, in a? To, are they playing to an audience? They are planning for that this fall. They they commissioned this piece that I wrote called um, "Destined Words," and that is to commemorate Marin Alsop's tenure with the orchestra. That will be her last concert with the Baltimore Symphony, and it's also Juneteenth. They wanted me to write something based off of Juneteenth as well. So. Their local artist, who was actually a rapper also, his name is Wordsmith, but his, his actual name is Anthony Parker. He uh, wrote the text. So this is for narration and orchestra. So they'll be premiering it uh, on June 19, in that, that Saturday night. And it will also be uh, uh, viewed via Maryland Public Television, television the, the uh, public television, television station. So, And that's this year. That's, that's next that's, month. Yeah, that's next month. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great to see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that a lot. That, that was the piece I was saying that I had the one breakthrough at midnight. <laughs> oh, but that's amazing. Yeah, I'll have to um I'll have to figure out a way to to watch that. That sounds great. Are there other big projects in the works or is there something something big you've wanted to do that uh, you haven't been able to do yet. What are what are your goals um, for the for the future? Okay, well, um, in terms of big projects, I'm actually at this moment, uh, like today, I was working on a piano trio. Chamber Music America commissioned me to write a piano piano trio for the Calix Trio, and they'll be premiering that at Tanglewood in uh, November this year. So I have to finish that this month because I have a new piece for Baltimore Symphony that's commissioned by Baltimore, Boston Symphony, and the Rochester Philharmonic. And the premiere is in January next year, but it needs to be delivered in, in November. And I haven't started. <laughs> so that's one. And then I have a band piece I'm writing for a consortium of university bands, symphonic bands. And that will be premiered next spring. But what I've always wanted to write is a cello concerto. That's one and an oratorio based on like a, the, the second coming of Jesus or something based on biblical or the great controversy theme. And um, that's been something I've always wanted to do. But I think at least with secular uh, orchestras and organizations, it would probably be a little bit lo too long for their programming. <laughs> right. That's very exciting. That would be great. And yeah, I, I I love the cello, so I hope you're able to do that at some point. I'm I'm buying my daughter a cello this week, so. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> We're gonna hey, get you're, started. What's your I'm a violinist. Hey, what's your instrument? Violin. Mm -hmm. Violin. Okay, good, good, good. But most of my time these days, most of my music hours are spent trying to make my children practice. <laughs> my own practice has fallen by the wayside. <laughs> sure. So, um, and, and what, what do you do? I, I, you're so prolific. You have so many things coming up. Um, I don't know how you have any time that isn't your creative composing time. Is there, are there other things that you do in your downtime? Are there things that you need to to um to do to give your to give your mind a reset so that you can come back to work what do you do in I, your free time <laughs> i study i'm studying hebrew so i love foreign languages like my wife is brazilian so she taught me portuguese so every time i go to brazil i'm, I'm 
I speak in Portuguese there, so I'm, I'm fluent actually. So I've learned, I studied German in the past at Andrews, French at Michigan, and now I learned Portuguese with my wife. And now I'm studying Hebrew. So I, I, I'm really serious about like biblical Hebrew and modern Hebrew. And I've been to Israel twice. And then um, I'm a, I also like watching like La Liga soccer games, La Liga or European, European leagues in general. Well, that's at least one thing where you um, can maybe let your brain rest. Studying foreign yeah. languages, you, you don't really give yourself much of a break. <laughs> no, no, not, not too much. I think if, I, if my wife and I are just not, just not resting and talking, and if she's busy, and like she's, she's a teacher, a middle school teacher, so she's busy with that. And then if, if we're just relaxing, then we can relax with each other and, you know, talk or maybe watch a movie or something. But um other than that, if I'm really relaxed and if I'm watching something, it's usually a game. <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for telling me about um, your compositions and your work. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We'll be in touch. All right. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to that interview from Alita Bird with composer James Lee III. And now we'll conclude with a four-minute section, Jacozo, from the world premiere of his Sonata Number no. 2 for violin and piano performed in 2018 at Luther College in Iowa.
Thank you.